As you are, we are uh, spending time in the Word a little early in the service so that we can respond to the truth in, uh, in some more uh, praise a little bit later. So if you have a Bible, you want to get it out, we're going to get into it now. I want to talk with you about the old days, what are normally called the good old days. I've rarely heard anybody talk about the old days as the bad old days. Ever heard that phrase? I haven't either. <laughs> it's, always, it's always the good old days. And we look back at the way that things used to be, the way things were in our life, and we have a certain uh, nostalgia about it, and we feel sentimental, and we just, it just seemed like life was better back then, and somehow the way it was is better than the way that, that it is. Seems to me uh, athletes in particular will talk this way. Uh, for pretty fundamental reasons. The body doesn't do what it used to do, so they kind of have to live in the past and remember the way that they, what they used to be able to do. And I was reminded of this yesterday as I was playing basketball with some guys from the church that the old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. So that's the reality of it. I've been to, I've been to uh, uh, high school football games uh, where you can see that, like, down near the end zone, there's a, a congregation of the ex-jocks, the ex-athletes from the school, and they're, they all kind of get down there, you know. And by the way, looking at them, X stands for extra large, if you've seen uh, what football players typically become. But anyway, uh, that's a whole nother point. There they are. And girls, don't date, like, don't date the linebacker. Anyway, um, there they are, and they're, they've gathered, and they, you know, they, they spit, and they talk, and they remember, oh, you remember the one game, and oh, you did this, and we did that, and they just sort of go over that, oh, those were the days, those were the glory days. The way things used to be are always better than the way that things are. Except for Christians. I would say for Christians, this is categorically false. The way things used to be are not better than the way things are. Particularly when we look in the mirror and we think about what our life was like B.C., before Christ. Maybe take a moment right now and think about that for yourself. If you are a Christian here today, what was your life like B.C.? What were your values like B.C.? What was... What was your, uh, what was the experience B.C.? And for every Christian, there is a B.C. and there is an A.C. There is the time before Christ and then there is the, the time after Christ. The way that I was before Christ, the way that I am after Christ. And there is a massive difference for Christians, uh, between Christians and the way that that a, a non-Christian would look back at those days. We don't look back at those days, B.C., as being all that great. You don't look back and say, oh, oh that was so great. I, I could sin any way I wanted to. Oh, that was great. I used to swear like a sailor. That was so cool. Oh, the hangovers. That was awesome. We don't think that way. We don't look back at our life before Christ 
and say that it was all that great because, frankly, it was not. Those were days that we were not under God's grace. Those were, those were days when I didn't have a relationship with the beautiful one, Jesus Christ. Those were days where I was actually apart from God. And B.C., every moment of my life, I was precarious. I mean, think about that, if you would. Before you came to faith in Christ, before we came to faith in Christ, every time I was in a car with oncoming traffic, every time I was uh, on a bicycle riding around the neighborhood with vehicles in danger, every time I swam over my head was a moment that a lot of people die from, and if it was me, I would have stepped into a godless eternity and condemnation. These were not great days. These were days when I didn't know God's love. These were days when I, I, didn't, I hadn't experienced uh, salvation. I had no confidence of eternal life. I didn't know who I was, where I came from, where I was going. They were days of confusion. In spite of whatever pleasure the sin that I was involved in provided, these were now, looking back at it, as a Christian, my B.C. days were not good days. And this passage today is going to bring this to bear with a warning and a wonder. And the warning is going to be for anyone who professes faith in Christ, but your lifestyle argues against what your profession is. It's going to be a warning for you. The wonder is going to be that God would save any of us. So, that's what we're going to see today. Message entitled, People That Used To Be. And uh, we're in chapter 6, verses uh, 9 through 11. And remember the context here of the letter. We have this church, first Christian church in of Corinth. And there they are, and they are in the midst of an incredibly pagan environment. Unbelievably immoral. The, the goddess of the city was Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and love. And so there is just rampant problems. Chapter 6, we've spent the last two weeks talking about the way Christians resolve conflict. They suit each other. Oh, now that's nice, isn't it? They just would sue each other. But that's the way the Corinthians lived. We've seen prior to this that the Corinthian, or the, 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 the Corinthian sexual uh, uh, values were seen in the church and and the Corinthian church they, they worship celebrity just like the Corinthian people around them so Paul has just been pounding them and pounding them that they are way too Corinthian and not nearly enough uh, Christian this is the problem now we could stop and just ask this question well who cares I mean who really gives a rip I mean why should we care if our lifestyles reflect the world around us? Why should we care if our values are the same as the culture around us? You know, God might not like his people suing each other, being sexually immoral, divisive, and all the rest, but we're still going to heaven because we all know that the final proof that you're a Christian is if you say that you are. Or if you have had some religious experience of some kind. Or that you prayed a prayer when you were a kid or some other thing. I mean, that's the real analysis. I mean, if, if you can just say that you're a Christian, then that's really what proves it. And that is what this passage is going to address today. And he has a warning. And here's the warning. Look at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Let that fall on your heart tonight. Do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the warning that we have is very plain. The unrighteous will not inherit this kingdom. And he connects this. This is flowing right here in chapter 6. This is not in isolation. See the context. It just flows right out of his admonition about them acting like Corinthians and suing one another. So he's connecting these two things. He's, in other words, this warning is not for Corinthian pagans who might sue each other. This is a warning for the members of the church. Corinthian members of the first church of Corinth, I want you to realize the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? The word there, inherit, uh, means this, to enter into full possession of. Okay, to enter into full possession of. The kingdom is a rich New Testament term uh, that Jesus taught on extensively, and essentially it means this. The kingdom of God is the expression of the rule and the reign of God. In the new covenant, this is the gospel that expresses that kingdom, is the power to save, and as people submit to that message, they enter into the realm of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is their Lord. Now, There is also a future dimension to the kingdom of God, and that's what he's talking about here. And what most of us would think about as heaven or salvation is what he is describing. The wicked will not, future tense, inherit someday the kingdom of God. Or we would maybe say it this way, the unrighteous will in the end not be saved. So this is a very strong warning. And I'm here to tell you tonight that this is something that we need to get. I need this warning in my heart. It is a, it is a, a kind of, it's a, it's a line in the sand. And, and Paul is saying, realize that this is vitally important, not for the pagans to know, but for the people in the church to know. And that means us here tonight. The unrighteous will not enter the future place of God. And the reason for that is that God is holy. God is holy. God cannot have a relationship with unrighteousness. Heaven cannot allow wickedness into it. So by definition, the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It is incompatible with who God is. Now right now, some of you are maybe thinking to yourself, wait a second, like, okay, I had a bad day today. I can think of some things even today that uh, I would have to say were sinful. And so are you saying, Pastor Steve, that anybody that's ever committed a sin cannot enter into the kingdom of God? Is that what Paul is saying? I sin every day. What about me? Well, this is why it's so important to understand what he is meaning here by the unrighteous. And so Paul now is anticipating this, and he goes on to describe what he's talking about. So again, verse 9, do not be deceived, he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Here's why it's so critical that we understand what we're talking about here tonight. If you miss this explanation, you might, you could easily maybe hear this and think to yourself, you know, I, I don't think that this applies to me. 
And so therefore, I'm not going to worry about it. And to have a false sense of assurance of your salvation and in the end, have the tragic experience of stepping into eternity and finding out that you're not under the grace of God. As J.C. Ryle said, hell is truth discovered too late. Too late. And we don't want you to be one of those kind of people. The other, the other uh, uh, problem here is some people might hear this and sort of do the other thing and to say, you know, I, uh, I see that list there and I kind of see myself in the list. Like I've done some of the things on the list. Does that mean that I'm not saved? Because I can see myself in the list. If the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, and this is the things on the list, does this mean that I am not or cannot be saved? So listen, please, very carefully to what I'm going to share here. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to correct a deception in the church. That's why he says, do not be deceived. There was, a, there was a mindset in the church at Corinth that people were ascribing to that he says is a deception. It is not true. It is not the gospel. So let's ask the question then, what is the deception? Here it is. The deception is that the kind of faith that saves you isn't a kind of faith that changes you. This is, this is the book of Hebrews. It's filled with warnings about this. First uh, John is written to address this uh, very same matter. So, uh, book of James, James 2 as well, the whole faith and works thing that he talks about there is trying to correct this issue. What is the role of my life? What is the role of my lifestyle as it relates to my salvation? And there was a deception that said this, that if your BC days and your AC days after Christ's days, are very similar, there's really nothing to worry about. That was the deception. You have BC time, you profess faith in Christ, but your AC looks a lot like your BC, but don't worry about it, because we're all under grace, right? As long as we profess Christ. And so, the problem with that is that over and over and over again, what is taught in the scriptures is that the kind of faith that saves and the work that God does in our life when we experience salvation is such a radical, massive, spiritual explosion inside that it will always change us. Now, this may be an incremental increase. This is not all at once, but it will change us. If it doesn't change us and our lifestyle is just like the wicked, remember, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of you right now are going, okay, wait, wait, wait a second. It sounds to me like possibly you're suggesting that it's our good works that save us. That is not what we're saying. Let me make it very clear. Salvation is completely by faith. There is nothing that we do to earn it before or after. It is utterly based upon Christ's atoning work for us, his death on the cross, which we celebrate on Good Friday. And 
that it is utterly of God. We merit nothing. We do nothing. We simply believe. And God gives us this salvation. We receive salvation. So there is, there is no contradiction with what Paul is saying here with salvation that is utterly by faith. And that is one of our cardinal beliefs. We'll never give up on that. So, and I'm not contradicting that whatsoever. Here's what we're saying. The gift of faith and the miracle of regeneration is a spiritual explosion within so radical that Paul says we are actually new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We are not what we were. We are new creations in Christ. And this transformation begins in us as the Holy Spirit in response to our faith, which he gave us as a gift in the first place, begins to apply now the promises that go along with salvation as though he begins to do those things within us, which we'll get to in a moment. This change begins. It is what Jesus called uh, to Nicodemus in John 3. Here's the clearest description that he could give of it. It's like being born all over again. It's like it's being born again. So, The image there is, I think, quite helpful. Unfortunately, we don't remember what it was like to be born. (laughs) I don't think we do. I don't. I have a memory like when I was four. That's about as far back as I can go. If you remember the whole birth canal experience and all that, you come talk to me. I'd like to know what that was like. No one's ever been able to say. We'd block the memory somehow. But let's just say that, let's just say that you could talk to a child after a little infant after being born, a little interview, and say, hey, how's it different now than like it was before? And to just sort of think about, like, what, what would a kid say about that? Like, I, I see him going, it's colder. It's colder. It's louder. It's drier stinkier, milkier, much different, much different than when I was inside mama. Radical change. And so Jesus thinks, okay, what is the closest thing that I can, what image can I draw on to try to help people to understand what happens in salvation? He says, it's like being born all over again being born again it's a dramatic change but it takes time and we all can give testimony to this it takes time for those changes to permeate into our ethical and moral life i mean the change is spiritually inside is is instantaneous i want i was in the kingdom of darkness i'm now in the kingdom of light I was, I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I was dead, now I'm alive. The change spiritually was wham, like that. There was a time, a moment in time when you went from being under the wrath of God to being an object of his love and his child adopted by him. But that's all stuff that happens inside. You know, when you see somebody that prays to receive Christ as their savior, on the other side of what, they, they look the same. They're not, they're not glowing, they're not floating, they're just like the same. But inside, they are completely different. Absolutely transformed, inwardly. 
Christians are no longer slaves to sin. Prior to salvation, we are enslaved to sin. We can do nothing. Paul talks about this in Romans. We can do nothing but sin. It is our basic inclination. Sometimes we do righteous things. Don't merit favor with God anyway, but just we we do good things. But our basic bent is towards sin. For the Christian, it is the opposite. On the other side of this being born again spiritually experience, now my orientation is more towards righteousness which heretofore I did not have. I stumble and I sin still. And sometimes Christians will sin grievously and even over a period of time. But that is the opposite of this new nature that I have. Before I was saved, that was my nature. I couldn't do anything else. I just, you know, like pigs in mud, I just love it, right? But now as a Christian, it's not the same. As a Christian, when it comes to sin, I regret it on the other side of it. Inwardly, I know that it was wrong and something in me wants to be free of the sort of guilt that I feel in my conscience. And I try to rid myself of it, which is known as repentance. But here, listen now. If I don't regret it, and if I don't repent of it, and if I don't, if I don't have any sense in my heart that I shouldn't have done it, or I, I, I wish that I hadn't, And if that spirit continues in me and that sin continues to dominate my life the rest of my days, this is now Paul's warning. Realize the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can't. And when my life, supposedly B.C. or A.C., looks exactly like my life B.C. and all everybody else that's B.C., now my life is in contradiction to my profession. And what I'm saying is what the Bible says, that in the end, the proof that I am a Christian is not that I say that I am. It is that I demonstrate it with my life. As Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. And that is why the way that I live and my daily ethic and all of this is so vitally important. Not to earn my salvation, but to show that I am a believer. And by the Spirit of God, I now have what I didn't have before, and that is the ability to have victory over sin. And that is what this list of ten sins is all about here. It's a profile of what unrighteous living looks like. It somewhat mirrors the Ten Commandments, but I I think what it is is a fairly good description of what normal Corinthian living was like. And we know this from history, what the kind of city it was and the things that dominated the culture. This is kind of what, you know, your average Corinthian, this is the, these are the things that he, that he, he or she kind of gave themselves to. And so uh, let, and the list is very similar to chapter 5, verse 9, which we already dealt with. So I'm not going to talk about every one of the 10 things. We don't have time. But uh, let me just make a comment on a few of them. Notice, first of all, he says... Uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. And here we have that, that uh, the old word was fornication. This is sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Sort of a generic term for it. Idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. I want to pause right here. Don't have many opportunities to talk about this, but this is a red-hot issue in our culture, and I think it bears some explanation. Let's talk about this a moment and what, what, uh, what Paul is trying to get at. The text here actually 
there are two words uh, that are used to, uh, there's actually two, two different words here. The ESV kind of glosses it by saying men who practice homosexuality. But in reality, there are two different uh, descriptions that are here. The first word literally means soft. If you have a King James Bible tonight, you'll see that it's translated effeminate, effeminate. And what this is talking about was one of the practices in the Greco-Roman world, and this is where knowing the culture of the day is very helpful. One, the, most, the most common form of homosexuality in that day was an older dominant man and a much younger um, boy or young man who would basically allow himself to be treated like a woman, would sometimes even sell himself as a mistress or as a prostitute. That's why the NIV translates that, nor male prostitutes. It's kind of getting at that angle of it. Uh, And so this was the common form of homosexuality of the day. Nero, who was the emperor at the time that this was written, married a young boy. Nine of the ten emperors, to some degree, were involved at least in bisexuality. So this was, like from the top of the culture down, this was a very pervasive and common form of sexuality. And we see Paul even kind of describing uh, with these two words the, the, the normal expression of that. And you can imagine in a city like Corinth where this was the city that worshipped sex. Their goddess was the goddess of sex and love. That there was all kinds of, of expressions of sexuality that ranged from uh, hetero to bi to homo to who, who knows what other kinds of expressions that there were. This was the city that this church was in. And this was the culture of the day. So the particulars are a little bit cryptic, but the general principle here that Paul is teaching is that homosexual behavior, like any sex outside of a male-female marriage, and we've got to make that very clear, like any sex outside of male-female marriage is a, is a, a deviance from God's blueprint for sexuality. You can read Romans one twenty six, which has more to say about and following about this particular matter. Now, I want you to notice something, Bethel. Notice that the word there is not capitalized. See that? It's also not at the beginning of the list. It's not at the end of the list as if it was drawing some special attention to it. It's right there in the middle of other more sort of socially acceptable sins like greed. It's another sin. One of many. It seems to me that there's a ditch on both sides of the road that the church can fall into when it comes to this particular issue. And in our culture, even my home state, Iowa, this week, and the whole battle with the whole same-sex marriage, unanimous on the Supreme Court struck down the whole marriage law, in my, uh, in my home state. So this is just like right out of the papers. This is the battle that's going on in our culture right now. For the church, we've got to understand, we, we need to understand this so that we can speak to the culture. There's two sides of the, of the road, two ditches that the church can fall into. On the one side is to minimize this morally and to make it less than what the Bible calls it, which is sin, wrong, morally Wrong, And today, there are major denominations in our country that are minimizing it and are ordaining 
homosexual pastors and priests to their pulpits and are making acceptance of it a test of Christian love and compassion. If we really were loving and compassion, we wouldn't speak against this particular thing. And this to me is, is, a, is a tragedy because the Bible clearly talks about it along with many other sins. Uh, that, uh, and the problem with it is this. When the, when the church does not define sin biblically, it doesn't define the gospel biblically either. Let me say that again. When the church doesn't define sin biblically, it doesn't define the gospel biblically either. And that applies to not just this sin, but all the other sins listed here as well. The church must stand morally where God has told her to stand. Because if we don't, then we end up with a kind of culturally negotiable morality. And a church then isn't actually a church and the gospel doesn't save anyone. Because there's nothing for them to be saved from. When the church no longer says, this is sin, this is condemned by God. And so the church must not wimp out in the culture with this or any other thing that God has said by his standards is wrong. So that's the one side that we must not, that's the ditch we must not fall into. But there is another ditch as well. Okay? There is another ditch as well. On the other side, when we pick any one particular sin and in this case, of course, homosexuality, and make it more than it is, then we are also in error as well, don't you think? You know, to hear some people, when they talk about sins, they sort of grade them. And there's the ones that they think are sort of maybe okay, and then there's the really bad ones. And this is one that many people, as they talk about it, put it into some kind of a category that I don't see God necessarily putting it into. It is not a sin that is unforgivable. It is not a sin that is beyond the grace of God. Jesus died for homosexual sin too, didn't he? I told the story before here about the church that I attended when I was in college. Calvary Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you know anything about evangelical Christianity and kind of the story in the 20th century, one of the leading Bible teachers was a, really a family of them, the DeHaan family. M.R. DeHaan uh, founded Calvary Church back in the early part of the last century. And that church for now, I don't know, maybe 100 years has been kind of a leading evangelical church and voice. And so very respected kind of church. Well, when I went there, it was pastored by a guy named Ed Dobson. And Pastor Dobson began to minister to the homosexual community in Grand Rapids. Uh, particularly, he was at the hospitals and made it very clear that he would come and he would pray with partners, one of whom was perhaps dying of AIDS. He would meet them in their crisis. He would care for them and just try to extend the mercy of, of God to them. And so he was doing this. Well, and he would kind of tell the church about it occasionally. Well, there were people in the church that did not like this. And he was getting criticized. This is while I was at the church. He was getting criticized for doing this. And I remember the Sunday that he stood in front of the church and he read a letter to the congregation. And the letter said that um, something to the effect that if you keep doing this, 
we're going to have homosexual people attending Calvary Church. And I, I was there. I saw it. He put the letter down, and he said, that's right. We may have homosexuals come here. They can come and sit down next to all the liars, cheaters, and adulterers we already have here. I don't remember anybody saying anything after that comment. That was pretty much the end of the uh, argument. So let me ask the question here, Bethel. Do we have this in some special category in our hearts? Maybe publicly, oh, no. But in our hearts, to ask the question for our church family and our ministry here, is there some category of sin that we want to say is beyond the grace and the mercy of God? Is there some sin that perhaps subtly in our heart we have a kind of bias against somehow? Or are we going to be a church that could put a sign out front that says, Bethel Church, sinners welcome? Because I would like to think that here with this gathering of sinners, that there wouldn't be any of us who would say uh, that there is some sinner that wouldn't be welcome here. Or there is some sin that is beyond the expression of our love and our ministry. And so maybe this weekend, because we have this passage in front of us, in a contemporary culture right now where this is a super hot-button issue, we can frame this matter biblically in our minds and in our hearts and to see it for what the Bible says that it is. It is a sin, but it is also a sin that Jesus died for. And for us to have a kind of ministry that reaches out to sinners just like us. Okay. Well, the list goes on. I don't have time for the rest of them uh, because I have a really a main point that I want to get to, and it's in verse 11. And to me, this is one of the most precious little phrases in all of the Bible. Verse 11. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God. Precious words, don't you think? And this is the wonder in the passage. That we are all people who used to be something. All of us. Such were some of you. You mean in the Corinthian church there were former adulterers? You mean in the Corinthian church 
there were former thieves, perhaps publicly known as such? You mean in the Corinthian church there were former prostitutes? Former who knows what in a city like that. Is that what you're suggesting here? Because I don't think any good church would ever let people like that in there. That's exactly what this is saying. This is God's kind of church. This is God's kind of heaven. I think one of the most popular questions in heaven, this is how we'll start our little discussions in heaven. It'll be kind of like the prisoners in prison where, you know, they, I'm sure in, in, in the penitentiary, they're like, what'd you do? You know, and they share like that. In heaven, I think it'll be some form of that where we'll be like, what, what, what were you like, B.C.? Like, what did Christ save you from? And we'll just, we won't glory in the sin, we'll glory in the fact that God forgave somebody like us. So how is this possible? If God is a holy God, and if the Holy Spirit inspired these very words and wanted us to know that in the church at Corinth, there were people who had done these things on this list, how is it that sinners like this could have an eternal relationship with a God like the one that we know, this holy God? How can that happen? And this is what Paul now explains. First of all, you were washed. You were washed. Spiritually, in salvation, when I receive Christ as my Savior, I am made clean this washing titus 3 5 identifies with the work of regeneration by the holy spirit we're made clean the sin the guilt the the ugliness the 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 sorrow all of that we are made clean to this day i was a boy when i received christ as my savior i was around six years old to this, I don't remember a whole lot about the experience, but to this day, I remember when, when I got up from my knees in that prayer, I had this feeling inside of being clean at six. Now, I wasn't clean because I felt it. I was clean because God had made me clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He washes us. We were dirty sinners. We're made clean before him. Secondly, he says I, or that, that, that we are sanctified. We are sanctified. That word means made holy. Hebrews says without holiness, no one can see God. So how can a sinner, how, how can that happen? Here's how. God makes us holy. He just, by the Spirit of God, he, he takes away the guilt so that we can have a relationship with a holy God. God makes us holy. That's why you're saints, by the way. We're all saints, made holy. Thirdly, I am justified. And here's the foundation of it all, really. I'm justified. This means that God declares me righteous before him it is an eternal declaration he brings me into the realm of righteousness and promises for the rest of eternity he will always treat me as righteous as jesus christ was that is the glory of justification god does it 
In fact, I want you to look at that list closely again. How many of these three things do I do? Am I making myself clean? Am I sanctifying myself? Am I justifying myself? No, these are all things that God does. Salvation is utterly of God. If there is, a, if there is something that I want to be known for in the top five things of my ministry here 100 years from now, tell me about Pastor Steve. I'd like to be known for somebody in your life who made it clear to you that salvation is entirely of God. He does it all so that he gets all the glory. We get all the good eternally. Love that. So that after salvation then, I am not what I was before. Before I was a sinner, before I was under wrath, but afterwards now I find myself gloriously into marvelous light I'm walking, out of darkness, out of pain. We sang that to start the service, celebrating this new thing that I have with by faith that God has done for me. I used to be immoral. I used to be greedy. I used to be materialistic. I used to be a slave to sex. I used to be somebody who worshipped something or some but somebody thinking they were more important or better than God. I used to be all these things. But what is true in every church is that it is filled with people who used to be something, but now by God's grace aren't that anymore. And they must not be that anymore. And that is Paul's warning here. Since God, in the authority of Jesus' name and by the Spirit, which is how he ends the passage, since God has done this radical thing in our life, transforming us, don't live like you used to. If you live habitually like you used to, then your life is saying something different than your profession. And you need to hear tonight, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there is a warning that we need to heed, and there is a wonder that we need to celebrate. And the wonder is that in spite of all these wicked things, and we could sit here right now, and if we were honest tonight, we could think of the list this room could create of things that we have done against the will of God, Thousands, millions, if we were honest. Big, long list of things. And I'll bet in the list there would be some pretty nasty ones, wouldn't there? In spite of all of that, the wonder of this is that by grace, we can look in the mirror and say, I once was something that I am not anymore. I used to be that. But now, by God's grace, I am this. We're all people that used to be. Christians are people that used to be. That's the title of this message. We used to be. But we're not anymore. And it just seems to me there is so much hope in this little verse. And I don't know how well I'm communicating here tonight to your heart. To your heart, friend. There isn't one person here that doesn't need to hear what this is saying. There is a wonder to this and a glory to this that we need to just love tonight. Sometimes I think we look at our life, if we're honest or in despair, we've done something or we reflect back on something that passed in our life and we think, I just don't know that God would save somebody who's done that. Or how could God ever forgive something that bad? And yet we see in this list right here a pretty bad list of things and yet the Holy Spirit says, such were some of you. 
In other words, there is grace to be found with God, and there is nothing that we can do that will keep us from that. That's the glory of it. And I'm so glad tonight that I can look out here and say, I don't know what you've done. And frankly, I'd rather not know. (laughs) Because then I might have to share what I have done, and I would rather not. But I can say to this entire room tonight that all of us can be recipients of God's grace. And that there is salvation that is available to anyone. My dear friend, as the Puritans used to say, God is a better Savior than you are a sinner. God is a better Savior than you are a sinner. Jesus said this, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible is filled with people who did horrific things, and yet by the authority of God's word are declared to be righteous. And someday you'll meet them in heaven. Heaven will not be a place where really great people ended up going. It's going to be a place where sinners who recognized they were sinners declared it and by faith received salvation by, from Christ. So we're all going to be there going, well, what did you do? And nobody's going to be able to say, nothing. We all have. And even as Christians, listen, even as Christians, let's be honest, even as Christians, even with this new radical change and even with this new inclination, We got stuff. We got stuff. And we could wonder about that stuff. Can God forgive that? Such were some of you. It is not grace. It is grace that saves us and begins this. But Paul says it is the grace by which we stand. Every day is God's grace to us. It is there. It is available. And by it, we stand. You know, this church, I pastored here 12 years. I probably know more about the sin in this church than anybody else here. And I can tell you, in some cases, it ain't pretty. Now, you come here on a weekend, you think, but nobody sins around that place. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's one reason I loved last uh, August. Remember this? Remember that? If you weren't here, what we had was we had, we had some music playing, and we had these people. These are our people. These weren't paid actors that we had come in or something like that. These were our people who got up and on, had a cardboard uh, sheet, and on one side they said, it's kind of a BCAC thing. They said, this is the way that I used to be. And then they would flip it. And on the other side was now what God has done in, in life and how they have become something that they, 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 they weren't. And you know what I noticed? I, I believe every service, standing ovation when it was done. Now, why would there be a standing ovation? Because we love to be reminded that all of us used to be something that we're not anymore. And we've had it right here in front of us, people who were honest and vulnerable with their own life experience, and it encouraged us. Just like this passage should encourage us tonight. Such were some of you. Friends, God is a better Savior than you are a sinner. Remember that. He's better at saving us than we can ever be at sinning, and we're pretty good at sinning, aren't we? But he is a better savior. 
So tonight, we praise God that every Christian here is somebody who used to be. And if you're here tonight and you can't say that, there's no flipping of the cardboard for you. You still are what you've always been. Then join the party like the rest of us who have by faith believed in Christ, his death on the cross for us, and have received grace and forgiveness from him. And you will find what we have found, and that is that there is this change that takes place, and we become what we weren't before, and we are so glad that we have, haven't we? Amen? Totally so glad to receive the grace of God and to see his great work in us. So praise him. He is a God who saves. He is a God of grace. Let's pray together.